Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad that you're tuning into another episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. As always, just so blessed, always excited each and every week to open up God's Word with you and to learn more about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today is podcast 72. And before we dive into Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 42, I just want to give you a quick update. I think I mentioned on a previous podcast that we are now on Stitcher. So if that has been your kind of your podcast platform of choice, and up to this point, you haven't been able to listen uh, directly on Stitcher, uh, this podcast, you now can. So we are grown, we've grown on various different platforms. So just excited to know that God has blessed us with uh, so many listeners uh, around the globe. And I just remember, I was actually thinking about this recently, and it, where I had this concept, you know, as I was studying, you know, through the Gospels and said, you know, it'd be great to kind of put this out there on podcasts. Didn't know anything about podcasts, not that I know anything about podcasts today, but a little bit, you know, enough to do what we're doing now. And got with some people and some experts and we talked through it. And I just prayed, said, Lord, it'd be great to just put out your your teachings out there and provide some commentary and provide some context and some perspective to help people grow and just understand who you are and your word better. And that was almost two years ago. And so now to see where we're at and how God has blessed it, it just warms my heart and just so thrilled. So thank you for your continual listenership, support, and prayers. Just I want you to know my friends, it just means so much to me uh, that you are listening. So as always, if you've missed out on any previous podcast, you can go to standstrongministries.org. That is our main site. Click on podcast. There we have all the archives through SoundCloud with my personal notes. So again, if you've not taken advantage of that, I encourage you to do that. It's just, it's free. It's there available for you. All we ask is that you use them. You grow in God's word. And as you strengthen your faith, as you know, as you're going through the gospels with with me, that you'll share it with other people, that you can disciple other people as you've been discipled and 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 challenged on this podcast. Let people know about what we're doing. Uh, that means a lot to us as well. So podcast 72, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10. Now, if you remember from our previous podcast, we just finished up talking in John chapter 10 about Jesus being the door of the sheep but also the good shepherd. And we explained what that meant and the importance of that. So now we transition to him uh, appointing 72 disciples to go into the towns and to proclaim the truth about him. Now, what's interesting about this is that Luke is the only gospel that records this entire account. So that's, that's pretty significant. So there's three key events that we're gonna be talking about in this chapter today. The first event is him commissioning, as I mentioned, the 70 or 72. It's kind of debatable in commentaries about the number of people that he actually sent out. The second event takes place in verses 25 through 37. And it's the famous passage about the good Samaritan. And we'll just examine, again, the importance of that in the proper context when the lawyer comes and approaches Jesus with a very pointed and important question. And the last event is when Jesus goes into a village and he has dinner if you will, 
with Mary and with Martha in verses 38 through 42. Now I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you each one of these events. And as I give each one of these events, we'll, like we normally do, we'll break down each verse in the context to get some interpretation. Uh, but because it's so long and we have so much material to cover, I'm just going to read the verses and then give commentary to each one. So let's jump right into Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, where Jesus commissions the 70 or 72 disciples. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, prior to this commissioning, remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, he sent out the 12 and they went out and they ministered in Galilee. And so now he's sending out so many more disciples or representatives. Remember, they're not the core 12, but these are people who've been impacted by Jesus's ministry and by the 12 disciples up to this point. So they act as representatives to continue to spread his message in all Judea. Now, one commentator writes, God multiplied the prophetic empowerment on Moses by inspiring 72 of Israel's elders. 70 plus Eldad and Medad. You see this in Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Moses wished for this inspiration to extend to all of God's people in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Jesus chose 12 apostles to lead renewal in Israel, which had 12 tribes, Numbers twenty two thirty, And Jewish people reckoned that there were 70 or even sometimes 72 nations. This phrase two by two means that messengers were often sent in pairs. So this explains the number of disciples that Jesus sends out and why he paired them up in twos. See, what Jesus was doing is he's sending these representatives out to talk about the kingdom of heaven, to send out the message and the power of Jesus's name. And they're going into regions like Judea and Perea, where Jesus is about to go spend more time. So later in some episodes on, on here on the podcast, we're going to be looking, particularly in the in the Gospel of Luke, a lot of very rich, powerful stories and messages and teachings and parables that Jesus will be giving during this particular time. Verse 2 says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray just means beg, implore earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out or to literally to thrust forth laborers into his harvest. Now, if you remember both John the Baptist and Jesus, they came preaching for people to repent of the king, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go back to Mark 1 verse 15. So this is the message now that he's building off of. And he gives this analogy of the harvest. And the reason why he's talking about the harvest is because he's implying the hard work that comes and the hard work that you invest in will bring forth fruit as you proclaim the gospel. Now, remember, this is something that Jesus had mentioned earlier in John chapter 4, verse 35 and 38, in Matthew 9, 37, 38. He was talking about the spiritual harvest before. So this repetitive message shows the priority of Jesus that he raises uh, to his disciples to what? To raise them up to become laborers so they can collect the bounty. Otherwise, it would just go to waste, which is why Jesus says, send out laborers. That was his whole focal point in sending out, commissioning these 70 to 72 disciples. Spurgeon writes this regarding send out laborers. He says, now the Greek is much more forcible. It is that he would push them forward and thrust them out. It is the same word, which is used for the expulsion of a devil from a man possessed. It takes great power to drive a devil out. 
It will need equal power from God to drive a minister out to his work. That's pretty powerful. I like what Spurgeon had to say regarding that. Now, in verse 3, it says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending. This is the term apostelo. This is where we get the word apostle, because that's what apostle just literally means, to be sent or the sent one. He says, So I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Verse 4, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is being very rude and how he's telling his disciples to go out there. Like, who would listen to you guys if you're going to be that rude? Well, we have to understand the Jewish mindset. Now, we know this is a commissioning. And why is Jesus giving these type of commands? Notice earlier he said that they will go as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is going to be a very challenging time. So when it comes to having no money bag, no knapsack, sandals, greet no one on the road, the mindset of the disciples is to be active and ready. They are to trust the Lord to meet their needs. Greetings oftentimes in that culture, they took a long time. But Jesus is saying your objective is to cover as much ground as you possibly can. Don't be you know, delayed. Try to avoid long delays. So when people in that time were on important, just like today, I mean, when you were in a hurry, you're not trying to be rude. You got to move on. So people that were on important missions at the time, they were excused from certain cultural formalities. And that's what's important here. Another thing that's fascinating about the number 70 or 72 is it's almost like Jesus is representing or symbolizing, if you will, his own Sanhedrin, because that was a number of people, Pharisees that were in the Sanhedrin. And what Jesus is saying is they go out in the midst of wolves. He's saying, you guys are like my Sanhedrin. You will bring the peace of God to Judea and all the surrounding regions and, and that area. And you're going to challenge the false teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember the early church, they provided resources. They provided money for evangelists and for teachers to travel and spread the gospel. So this continued on after Jesus did it here. And then of course, after the resurrection in third John seven through eight, it says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these and we may be fellow workers for the truth. So here in verse five, it says, whatever house you enter first say peace. It just means between God and man be to this house. And if a son of peace, which just means honorable, benevolent person is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So Jesus clearly states to his disciples that there will be people who receive his message and they're going to be people who reject his message. Now, coming in the peace and the shalom of God was a way of Jesus telling his disciples not to be like the Pharisees. Remember, we're told in Luke chapter 20 that the Pharisees, they love long greetings. They love long salutations in the marketplaces. It was no longer about the peace of God being upon people. Jesus' disciples were to bring the messianic blessing of peace, of that shalom upon that home. That's what they're called to do. So that's why in verse 7 here it says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So it was very customary for travelers to be hosted by others during their journeys. What Jesus is telling them, not going house to house, because you look at that and you think, is that a contradiction? I thought they're supposed to spread the message of the kingdom of heaven. So why aren't they to go house to house? Well, what they would oftentimes do is they would establish a headquarters in a particular home. And so Jesus is saying, find the people that you bless that home that receive the message and they'll care for you. They'll provide for you. You don't take 
belongings, you'll get the belongings because people will give it to you when you come. So establish that as a headquarter in these certain cities and towns and use it as a strategic, effective way to spread the message that, I'm, that I've called you to spread. And then here in verse 9, he says, and then you are to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come. That just means drawn present to you. So Jesus gives these 72 disciples power to even heal. Now, this was a confirmation for the people to see that the kingdom of heaven was indeed coming. And then in verse 10, it says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, which just means the day of judgment for Sodom than for that town. So wiping off dust was a sign of protest or a sign of impending judgment on the people who rejected the message, which according to Jesus, he's saying, if they do that to you guys, it will be worse than the fate of Sodom itself. Remember, Sodom was a very destructive and wicked city. You see that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Now in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it writes, if a town rejected the 12, the latter were to shake the town's dust off their feet. When Jews returned home from a Gentile country, they would shake the dust off their feet to signify their breaking ties with the Gentiles. In this way, the twelve signified that certain Jewish townspeople were like Gentiles who would not listen or believe. Jesus was thus giving the entire area opportunity to believe his message and his mission. So here now in verse 13, where Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works, which just means powerful deeds that are done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable, tolerable, endurable, and the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. So these towns that Jesus mentions, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they were near Capernaum, and they were just north of the Sea of Galilee. This is a place where Jesus spent a lot of his time in those cities in his early ministry. Not to mention, we are told that many of the uh, of the twelve disciples actually lived in this area. Matter of fact, in John one forty three and forty four, it says, "The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me." Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter.'" Listen to what Warren Wiersbe had to say about this particular passage. He says, This seems like harsh language from the lips of the Son of God, but we dare not ignore it or try to explain it away. He named three ancient cities that had been judged by God, Sodom, Genesis 19, Tyre and Sidon, and Ezekiel 26, 28, Isaiah 23, and used them to warn three cities of his day, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These three cities had been given more privileges than the three ancient cities, and therefore they had more responsibility. If Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon were destroyed, how could Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum escape? So some good insight from Warren Wiersbe as to why Jesus is mentioning these ancient cities to the current ones that he's sending his disciples to go preach. Here now in verse 16, it says, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me 
rejects him who sent me. So the disciples, again, as I mentioned, they were representatives of Jesus. They were coming in his name and they were empowered to deliver his message and also to heal the sick. And so in verse 17, the 72 returned after following the commands of Jesus. And they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So this is exciting. You see the disciples coming back and they're seeing Satan be pushed back from this region. They're doing things that they only saw Jesus do, but now they're doing in his name. So you can imagine just the the thrill, the excitement that they were having by coming to Jesus. And you know, when 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 a child does something so good, they, they want to get affirmation from a parent or a student with a teacher or a player to a coach. So you could imagine how exhilarating it was for them to come back and say, Lord, we did everything you told us to do. And it was exactly like you said. And even demons were subject to us. Satan doesn't have a foothold there now. And in verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That word fall literally just means the loss of power and authority. So the mission of the 72 disciples had put a major setback on Satan's operation in Judea. Now, we also know in, in later things to come in the study of prophecy, which is known as eschatology, that Satan's rule over the earth will come to an end someday. We see that in John 12, verse 31, 1 John 3, 8, and Revelation 20, verses 2 through 9. And then now here in verse 19, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This is the spiritual wickedness that he's exposing. And all over the power of the enemy, who is a hostile opposer to what they're doing, and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus uses Old Testament symbolic language of a serpent and scorpion to describe the evil dangers of Satan. So the disciples, they, by hearing this, when they just came back, he's saying, you guys came, you guys went in my power and you returned in my power and you will continue to go in my power and I will protect you from the dangers of Satan's kingdom. Later in many of the church letters, we see the mentioning of this by two apostles, particularly Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. John writes in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And verse 20 now says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the Greek, it just literally means that your name will stand forever written in heaven. So this was giving the disciples great joy, not just what they have accomplished, not just that they saw setbacks in Satan, and they were victorious as his disciples, but an even greater joy is for Christ's disciples to rejoice that they will be in heaven someday. Now here in verse 21, Luke does something that is just spectacular. Notice how he references what Jesus does afterwards. It says here, in that same hour, he rejoiced. That's Jesus. It just means that he was thrilled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank, it just means I acknowledge, I confess you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Isn't that an amazing way this is little powerful prayer of acknowledgement that Jesus gives to the Father. So what Jesus does here is he turns and prays to the sovereignty of the Father and the great privileges that he has lavished on his children. And so what a great experience that Jesus has at that moment to see the success of the disciples and the setbacks, obviously, that it created for Satan. Verse 22, Jesus continues and says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows 
who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What's amazing about this phrase is as Jesus sends out the disciples in his name, he unites them together in the unity that's represented in the harmony between the two persons of the Trinity. Now in verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and do not see it and to hear what you hear and do not hear it. So what Jesus says here is that even the Old Testament believers, they anticipated this long ago. They prophesied about these things and the disciples get to live in it. They get to witness it. Now, because of the commissioning of all these people going out in the name of Jesus and the healings and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you could tell this stirred some things up. And so now we're told in the second event, this lawyer approaches Jesus. And this is now where we get into the topic about the Good Samaritan in verses 25 through 37. And it says here in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now in the Greek, it just means to learn the nature of, to, to not be hostile. So oftentimes we think that the lawyer is coming off very hostile. He may not be hostile in a very uh, demeaning way, if you will, but he definitely has a lot of issues of pride and confusion. But notice he comes respectfully, says teacher, which just means rabbi, what shall I do to inherit? That just means to possess, to benefit, to obtain eternal life. Now in those days, a lawyer was an expert in the Mosaic law and also in rabbinical studies. So more than likely, this lawyer was a Pharisee or a scribe. So he comes to Jesus to find out what he has to say about eternal life. Now, this was a question that was asked of Jesus many times. You go back to the famous passage in John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 16 in Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 22. So the lawyer here, he represents a person who hears the gospel and he knows the truth yet he chooses to reject it in the end. So remember, Jesus was telling that to the disciples ahead of time. And so one of the people that heard the message and then came to the source is this lawyer. And so that open rebuke again that we saw in verses 10 through 12 applies to this lawyer here, that he's like those evil cities that rejects the message. In verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus uses his knowledge and understanding and asks him these two questions. So he responds to the legal expert with these two questions about the law. Now notice in verse 27, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer answered correctly by quoting from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 about loving God and Leviticus 19, 18 to love your neighbor. Jesus' response to him here in verse 28 is, you have answered correctly. Do, this means perform this and you will live. So if this lawyer could keep these two commands perfectly, he could inherit eternal life. Of course, you and I know this is an impossible task given the fact that he is born in sin and that he is in God, that salvation is by faith, is not just by keeping the law. In verse 29, the lawyer trying to justify, it says here, desiring to justify himself, just literally means to prove to be right, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, see, an honest response here would have been to ask how could he possibly love God and his fellow man without sin? But instead, see, the Lord, remember, is trying to prove himself to be right. So even though he didn't come to be hostile, he's showing, again, a lot of his pride 
Because you can imagine that this expert in the law is looking at Jesus, who's an uneducated rabbi, not accepted by the Sanhedrin, who breaks the law regularly, like remember doing healings on the Sabbath, is basically saying, how can you tell me what the answer is to inherit eternal life when I know the law better than you? That's the kind of approach that he's taking because he's trying to prove himself. He's trying to justify himself in the presence of Jesus and the witnesses. So by asking this question about who his neighbor is, he's showing his self-righteousness on account of himself, right? But he's asking a question that the Jewish people knew. So they're kind of looking at this guy thinking, you're trying to prove yourself to be right, but you're asking a foolish question because the Jews had a very technical and limited definition for what a neighbor was. It excluded Samaritans and Gentiles. So this lawyer believed that he was fulfilling the first commandment, yet he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So if he was loving God, how come he wasn't loving Jesus and accepting him as the Messiah? If he knew the law, he would have known up to this point that Jesus was fulfilling the law. Not to mention that this lawyer would have known that his very definition of what a neighbor is, is actually a hindrance. It's preventing him from actually showing unconditional love. But of course, he's not focusing on anything like that at all. He just wants to prove himself to be right in the eyes of the people that are around him. So what's interesting now is that Jesus turns his focus now and tells him a story. Now, it's important to point out that I don't believe this particular story is a parable. Nowhere does it mention that it's a parable, like normal, where Luke is very consistent about that. So I don't think we should be taking this allegorically. Jesus is setting up real-life cities, real-life situations to expose to this lawyer who his neighbor is. So he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a priestly city, and he fell, which just means to fall into the hands of among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this description that Jesus gives in this location is not made up. It was, it's a, an actual area located in the Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. This path from Jerusalem to Jericho was very narrow and very rugged, and it was known for its robbers who would hide behind corners and attack people. So traveling this path alone was very foolish. And then verse 31 says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So priests and Levites... They would travel this road often because they lived in Jericho. Remember, it was a very wealthy city. It was where the priests lived, and they would go to Jerusalem to conduct their temple duties. And so this first religious official, this priest, neglected to meet the needs of this fellow Jew. He was not obliging to perform acts of mercy that he was supposed to do. Remember, priests, they performed sacrifices on behalf of the Jews. But this man wasn't willing. This priest wasn't willing to sacrifice anything for this dying man. Then we're told in verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he had came to the, the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So Levites were not descendants of Aaron, right? They were, they were descendants of Levi, hence the name. And what the Levites would do is they would assist the priests in the temple and performed many duties. And the Levites here, they represented purity, and yet they showed no pure motives to help the dying man. Now, we can also look in the text of this story that Jesus is talking about and think that the Levite, because they would be pure, assume the man to already be dead and so didn't want to cross paths with a dead corpse, making him unclean. So that's why he didn't help him. Now it says in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. In Greek, it just means he had great affection. He had great pity for him. So Jesus introduces to the lawyer 
someone that was not to be his neighbor because it was a Samaritan. You're to hate those people because obviously it was mutual. They hated them too. They were half Jews. Uh, the Jewish people obviously worshiped in Jerusalem, but we know that the, the Samaritans had different form of worship and they, they centered on Mount Gerizim. You see that back in John 40 verses 20 through 22. And the Samaritans came after the Northern Kingdom fell in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And so there was a mixture of blood there. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is using a Samaritan to be the hero, to be this brave traveler who was willing to be among the Jews, the priests and the Levites. And even though he knew he was hated, he showed love and compassion for this man. Then in verse 34, he says, and he went and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So we see that this Samaritan, he uses proper elements to cleanse, to soothe, to heal the man's wounds. And he takes him to an end to have him recover. This Samaritan goes far beyond just helping the man up. He covers his wounds. He takes him into an end. He pays two days for him to stay. That's two days of wages that he invests in this man to make sure he has a full recovery as best as he can. This is showing unconditional love that, and again, the surprise in all this is that this is actually a Samaritan doing this for a Jew. And so here comes the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So this is a direct question that hinges on the first and the second commands. The lawyer said in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy and Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. So prior to this encounter with the lawyer, the Jewish leaders, remember, had just accused Jesus of being a Samaritan and having a demon. They said that in John 8, 48. So this teaching condemned the priest. It condemned the Levite for not fulfilling the law. And it uplifted the Samaritan, which, of course, they despised and they rejected. And it was the Samaritan who cared more, who actually lived out the law than the actual Jews did. So even this... This answer that the lawyer gives is very is a very uncomfortable and easy one to give because he essentially he was admitting three things. Number one, that he himself wasn't showing the kind of mercy there for not fulfilling the law. Two, that the priest and the Levite, they were in the wrong and not living up to the law. And three, the Samaritan, the one that they despise and reject is actually the one living out the law. And so the lawyer represents, he is a picture of the people who reject the message of Jesus. They think they can inherit eternal life on their own. And now we look at our final event here in Luke chapter 10. This is in verses 38 through 42, where Jesus comes and he dines with Mary and Martha. Now, why do you think this is placed in this chapter that's not mentioned in any of the gospels? I believe because this is now a picture of two followers of Christ who embrace him as a son of God, but have two different approaches of how they look at Jesus. And so that's going to give us some insight as well. So in verse 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed, just means accepted, received with friendliness, Jesus into her house. So here we see that Mary and Martha are sisters, and it seems that there's this familial relationship that Jesus actually has with them. Now remember, their brother, who's not mentioned here, but later in John chapter 11, when he dies and Jesus goes and he resurrects him. Uh, these two sisters 
are inviting Jesus over. He's in that in that area, and so they want to do something special for him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the two sisters, they represent believers who receive the messianic peace. Now, remember when he told the disciples to go into people's home and to bring the shalom. So Jesus is literally doing that. He's bringing the shalom. He is the Messiah. He's bringing peace upon this family. And we'll see how the two sisters respond differently. Now, this village that Jesus comes into is Bethany. This is just a mile or so outside of Jerusalem. And remember, Bethany was also the city that Jesus stayed in a week prior to his death. So he will return, as I mentioned, when he heals Lazarus. Now, verse 39 reads, And she, that is Martha, had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Wearsby had something cool that he put in his commentary that I want to share with you. He writes, Mary of Bethany is seen three times in the gospel record, and on each occasion she is in the same place at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to his word, Luke 10, 39 here, fell at his feet and shared her woe, John eleven thirty two, and came to his feet and poured out her worship, John 12, verse 3. It is interesting to note that in each occurrence, there is some kind of fragrance. In Luke 10, it is food. In John 11, it is death. In John 12, it is perfume, end quote. So I thought that was pretty fascinating to kind of put in perspective again, the type of person that Mary was in every time that she's mentioned. Now here in verse 40, it says, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So you see here, Martha she neglected to spend time with Jesus because she was so focused on doing something for him. Now let's pause and let's go back to the disciples. When Jesus sent them out in his name, if they were so busy, if they are so focused on getting it right and that they failed to go and worship, they would have missed it. And we see the difference here between Martha and Mary and there needs to be a good balance. So Jesus in verse 41, he answers Martha and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So the lesson to Martha and to the rest of us listening to this podcast is we serve Jesus. We need to be at his feet first before we learn from him. That is a valuable lesson for all of us. We are to be like the disciples who go in the powerful name of Jesus and when people reject it, even though we're you know, among wolves, in the midst of wolves, that we are to prevail because we go into the powerful name of Jesus. And that when we live for Christ, we will have people like the lawyer who will come to us and they'll challenge, they'll question, they may inquire, they may be hostile, or they may be prideful and self-righteous or be religious in some form or fashion and believe that they have the answers. Or oftentimes we come uh, around people like Mary. You run across people who are very intimate, they love being at the foot of Jesus or people like Martha who are very distracted and very anxious about things and trying to prove themselves and their self-worth and they're confused about those things. But the bottom line, my friends, as we close out this lesson today is that you and I need to learn how to worship God before we work for God because when we worship him, we want to do his work and when we're doing his work, we're worshiping him and that's the focal point ultimately on this passage today. So I pray this has been a blessing to you. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening. 
and keep standing strong in the Word of God.